The real emphasis here is being born of the Spirit. God must make one alive. So unless God makes someone alive, no one can enter the kingdom of God. Welcome to the Fox Den with Terry Fox. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to episode 46. In this episode, I want to talk about what it means to be born again. And just as a quick side note, it's really the same thing as regeneration. But we're going to take a look at being born again according to John chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. And in that passage, we see a guy by the name of Nicodemus. And he was a Pharisee and ruler of the Jews. And he comes to Jesus by night to engage with him. And Nicodemus tells Jesus that they know that he comes from God because of the signs that he does. A person who can do signs like Jesus can only come from God. Now, I find myself asking, what was Nicodemus's point? What's his motivation? Why did he engage with Jesus? Well, we don't know, but Jesus wastes no time to redirect the conversation. He tells him in verse 3 that no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Now, that seems like a peculiar response to Nicodemus's comment. Nicodemus tells him he knows he's from God, and the next thing you know, Jesus is talking about being born again. But Jesus knows what he's doing. Now, Nicodemus comes across as aloof, but R. Kent Hughes says that he's not. He says that Nicodemus is painted as a theological dummy in many commentaries, but Jesus wouldn't have confronted him with this idea had he been a theological dummy. So he goes on to say that Nicodemus knows exactly what Jesus is talking about. In fact, the rabbis had a similar thought concerning those who embraced Judaism. The bottom line, however, according to Hughes, is that Nicodemus knew what Jesus was saying. Now, we can speculate what Nicodemus's motives were, but it seems that Jesus knew exactly why he was there. Yet Jesus leads him where he wants him to go. So Jesus brings up being born again. Now, Nicodemus follows the logical conclusion of Jesus' statement. And it seems that Nicodemus is being somewhat sarcastic or facetious. He wonders how one can enter his mother's womb again when he's older. So Nicodemus is thinking physically, but Jesus is speaking spiritually. In verse 5, Jesus says that one needs to be born of water and the Spirit in order to enter the kingdom of God. The real emphasis here is being born of the Spirit. God must make one alive. And again, this is the idea of regeneration. So unless God makes someone alive, no one can enter the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus says there's two births. There's a physical birth, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that's every human being. However, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit, and that's not every human being, but only those whom God made alive. Jesus then likens this truth with the wind. You don't see the wind, but you see its effects. Now, as I record this episode, we have a hurricane coming through the Gulf about to enter the southern states of the United States. We may see the rain clouds and the rain, but we can't see the wind. As a matter of fact, just about an hour or two ago, we had a strong cell move through our town, and I had to hurry up and grab the yard umbrella to make sure the wind didn't blow it away. I can't see the wind, but I can see the trees moving. 
and I could feel the wind blow that umbrella. So you don't see the wind, but you see the effects. So in the same way here, you don't see the work of God's Spirit, but you see the effects of God's Spirit, which Jesus reveals later in verse 21. At this point, Nicodemus seems a bit bewildered. He asks in verse 9, how can these things be? And Jesus seems to scold him in verse 10, saying, you're a teacher and you don't understand these things? In other words, how do you not know this? Did you catch what Jesus was saying? Nicodemus is just as ignorant about the things of God as the ones he teaches. He's a Pharisee and he doesn't grasp that Jesus is talking about spiritual birth. But the Old Testament spoke of these things. You see, the whole Old Testament is primarily about Jesus. Sure, we get the history of Israel, and those are real-life events. But the whole Old Testament is primarily about Jesus. You can listen to episode 8, where I talk about this in a little more detail, and I show you how God acts out the gospel throughout the Bible. Furthermore, if you look at Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27, where Ezekiel talks about the new covenant, it says that God is going to give us a new heart and put a new spirit in us. He's going to remove the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. And he's going to put his spirit in us and cause us to walk in his ways. Nicodemus should have had these and other verses in mind, yet he reveals his ignorance when talking to Jesus. So Jesus goes to the heart of the matter. Jesus is really acknowledging the truth of Nicodemus's earlier statement. If you remember, Nicodemus acknowledged that Jesus has come from God. Jesus confirms this by telling Nicodemus why he's come from God. And he goes back to the Old Testament to do so. The purpose of his coming is found throughout the whole Old Testament, but Jesus focuses in on the bronze serpent in the wilderness. So let me quickly give you an overview of that story so that we understand a little bit better what Jesus is referring to. They had just recently left Egypt, but they hadn't yet entered the promised land. During this wandering, the people spoke against God and against Moses, so God sent serpents. Many of the people were bitten and died, so they pleaded with Moses that he pray for them. When he did, God told him to make a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. When someone was bitten, they were to look at the bronze serpent and they would live. Do you know why Jesus took Nicodemus to the bronze serpent? Jesus connects himself to the bronze serpent. Now, he's not capitalizing on an Old Testament event. Jesus didn't look back on Old Testament stories and use them merely as illustrations. What he is saying is that the bronze serpent points forward to him. In essence, Jesus is the bronze serpent. As that bronze serpent was lifted up in the wilderness several hundred years before Jesus was even born, so Jesus must be lifted up on the cross. And we know this happened because John 19 tells us about the crucifixion of Christ. And as the people looked at the bronze serpent and lived, those who look upon Christ, those who are believing in him, have eternal life. Then Jesus further explains his point by moving into verse 16. Now, the first thing I want you to notice here is that verse 16, perhaps the most popular verse in the Bible, at least in the United States, is dependent on verses 13 to 15. 
the word for at the beginning of verse 16 tells you that Jesus is continuing his thought in verses 13 to 15. In other words, though John 3.16 is the most quoted verse in the Bible, it's not a standalone verse. It's related to, and quite frankly, dependent on verses 13 to 15. Next, we need to look a little more closely at the word so in verse 16. In American Christianity, we misuse this little word by overemphasizing it. That distorts the meaning. For example, we read it as, For God so loved the world, as if it describes the depth of God's love. But that's not the intended meaning. The original language reveals something different. That word translated so is really a word that describes manner. The word translated so should be translated in this way. In other words, this is how God loved the world, not how much he loved the world. So it should be translated for God loved the world so, or in this way. For God loved the world in this way, he gave his only begotten son. It shows how God loved the world, not how much he loved the world. We can certainly see the depth of God's love in the giving of his son, But the primary focus of this verse is the manner in which God loved the world. And this makes sense with verse 15 in view, because John 3.16 is tied to John 3.15. Therefore, the parallel manner of the bronze serpent and Christ was being lifted up or crucified. That's how God loved the world. And there's a parallel outcome from both. Those who looked upon the serpent lived, and those who look upon Christ have eternal life. You see, looking upon the serpent being lifted up is an act of faith. It's an act of believing. Think about it. Let's say you're out in the woods and you get bitten by a snake and the instruction was, go to where the bronze serpent is and look at it and you will live. What would you do? More than likely, in today's society, you'd go to the doctor. But if you went and you looked at that bronze serpent, if God gave you that instruction, you would live because it's an act of faith. Think about the faith it would take to do that. And trusting in Christ, who was given to be crucified, is also an act of faith. You see, as we recognize our own sin and the fact that we deserve God's condemnation, and we depend on the work of Christ for our salvation, that's an act of believing. It's an act of faith. Well, then Jesus continues elaborating on verses 13 through 16 in verse 17. Again, it begins with 4, which tells us it's connected to verses 13 through 16. As God lifted up Christ in the same manner as the bronze serpent, God sent Christ into the world that the world might be saved through him. Now, our tendency is to interpret world as every individual. For example, for God so loved the world is often interpreted that God loves every individual. And here, that the world might be saved through him is often understood as if God wants to save every individual through Christ. But there are other places that indicate world doesn't mean every individual. For example, later in John's Gospel, in John 17 verse 9, Jesus prays for his people and not for the world. Did you catch that? He specifically says he's praying for his disciples and not for the world. He's specifically praying for those whom the Father gave him and not for the world. If Jesus came to save every individual, then why didn't he pray for them? 
Why did he pray only for those whom the Father gave him? Furthermore, Jesus doesn't pray for the world, but he does pray for those who will believe. And this is future tense. Look at what he says in John chapter 17, verse 20. He's not just praying for these. He's also praying for those who will believe. In other words, Jesus didn't pray for every human being. And he also didn't pray that every human being would believe. He prayed for those whom the Father gave him and for those who will believe through the words of his disciples. So Jesus didn't pray for every human being. But did you see for whom he did pray? You. He prayed specifically for you. This is one of those places in the Bible that you can see yourself. He's praying for those who will believe. That's you. And you can see in John 17 what is known as the high priestly prayer that Jesus prayed for you. There you are in the Bible. Next, John 3.18 identifies two groups of people, those who believe and those who don't. The one who is believing is not judged. That's a present tense verb. The one believing is not judged. The one who is not believing is judged already. Again, this is a present tense verb, judged already. The reason they are judged is that they have not believed in the name of Christ. Let me take you again to the original language. There are two Greek words that are translated have not believed. One word is translated not, and the other word is translated have believed. The word that's translated have believed is a perfect active indicative. Now let me unpack that. The active simply means it's the subject doing the action, the one not believing. The indicative means it's a fact. So, for example, the imperative is a command. Indicative is a fact. So, they're either believing or they're not believing. In this instance, they're not believing. The perfect, however, shows a completed action. It shows that the progress of action is complete, and the results of that action are continuing. That means they're not having believed has run its course. In other words, they are judged already because they don't believe and they will never believe because their unbelief has reached its culmination. Then Jesus describes the judgment in verse 19. People shunned the light when it came into the world because they loved darkness. And they loved the darkness because their deeds are evil. You see, their loving the darkness is the judgment. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. 
You see, handing them over to their sinful lusts is the judgment. Now, don't be fooled. The world loves their sin. And you and I would have loved our sin had God not changed our hearts and made us alive with Christ. And the unbeliever doesn't realize the sin that they love is the judgment of God. Do you ever find it odd that when you share the good news of Christ, people just blow it off? You can tell them that in order for them to be saved, all they have to do is depend on the work of Christ, and they ignore it. And I think we typically think that we have failed in evangelism, but that's not true. We didn't fail in evangelism. They love their sin, and they don't want to change. And you and I would have been in the same boat had the Holy Spirit not made us alive with Christ, had we not been born again. And look at what Jesus says in verse 20. He says that the wicked hates the light. They don't come into the light because they don't want their evil deeds exposed. The wicked hate the light and they do not come to the light. This is Paul's point in Romans chapter 8, verse 7. The mind that is set on the flesh does not submit to God's law. And why do the wicked not come to the light? They hate the light and they don't want their evil deeds exposed. Because they fear the exposure of their deeds, they do not come to the light. On the other hand, the one who does what is true comes to the light. What does Jesus mean by this? Well, it has to stand in contrast to those who do evil deeds. After all, Jesus used a contrasting conjunction in verse 21. So the contrast to those who do evil and shun the light is those who come to the light. Another question here is, what does it mean to do what is true? This is a confusing phrase. How do you do truth? The bottom line here is the one who is believing contrasts the one who is not. The believer has been born again and has come to the light. And he comes to the light because it's carried out in God. If you look at what John says in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, he says that we were not born of the will of man, but of God. So the dichotomy here is that the wicked practice evil and run from the light. Those born again, those born of God, come to the light so that their deeds are revealed as being operated in God. The unbeliever is apart from God and he wants it that way. But the believer is connected to God, which reveals his deeds. Now at this point, I want to remind you that you're not going to live a perfect Christian life. You're going to continue to sin. And you can listen to episode 12 where I talk about the real Christian life. But you see the work of the Spirit in you when you're struggling against sin and you desire to love and obey God. You see, that reveals a true believer. You can't look at your life and think just because you sin, that's a sign that you're not a believer. Because as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 to 25, we're going to struggle with sin till the day we die. And we're going to fail many, many times. There he says that I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things I want to do. That's the Christian life. But it's your desire to love and obey God. This is the work of God's Spirit. Jesus mentioned in verse 8 and Ezekiel mentioned in Ezekiel 36 verses 26 to 27, the passage I read earlier. Well, what we've just talked about should comfort you. You who recognize your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ For the forgiveness of your sins, you've been born again. And you're not born again because you believe. You believe because you've been born again. 
Furthermore, Jesus was lifted up on the cross like the bronze serpent in the wilderness. And he did this so that you would have eternal life. As the people were bitten by serpents and as they looked upon the bronze serpent and lived, so we who look upon Christ in faith have eternal life. You who believe in him now have eternal life now and are not judged and will never be judged. Rest assured in the love of God for you. He has secured you as one of his own in Christ. That concludes this episode. If you have any questions, please email me at terry at thefoxdenjournal.com. If you enjoy The Fox Den, please leave a positive review and share this podcast with others. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe. The Fox Den is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Thanks for listening. And remember, faith comes by hearing.